Anyway, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 34 tonight. If you have your Bible or your phone, go ahead and open up to there. You know how what you believe about somebody will directly affect the way that you look at them or treat them or how you're going to approach them about certain things, whether or not it's even true. Like if you just believe something, if, even if your brain has made it up, but you think it's true about that person, you're going to approach them differently, have interactions with them differently, talk to them differently. I know this really personally because my wife, she just had our third baby two weeks ago. So now, thank you. So now nobody's sleeping. And so we got number three at home, but maybe some of you can relate to this. She very strongly has pregnancy dreams when she's pregnant. So we'll go to bed and everything's good. I got both the kids to sleep. Uh, everything's happy. And then we we'll go to sleep. Then I wake up and she's just mad. And I'm like, what happened? She goes, I had a dream that you did this. And then I just start laughing, which makes it worse. But because she had this dream that dream me did something bad, she's mad at me about it. And so the way that she approaches me about it and the way that we do life is different now, right? What you believe about someone can really directly affect the way that you do things with them, the way you do life. I, I know this firsthand even from when I was in high school. I had just moved up here from San Diego after finishing eighth grade. So I jump into New Hope. It's my freshman year. I don't know anybody. I don't know anything. And at New Hope, my, the class I jumped into was a class of about 20 kids. It had been the same 20 kids um, for fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and they began to get this reputation about themselves, that they're very disruptive, that all they do is goof off, they're always giggling, they're always finding some way to set the classroom off its course. And so uh, some staff had left that summer, and new staff had joined. And so I show up, it's my first day of school, I don't know anybody, um, I go to first period and it's great, and meet one of the teachers, meet my classmates. There's a new teacher though, science teacher, and somewhere in his orientation he heard about my class. And he said, oh, oh that class. I almost quit because of that class. That class doesn't listen, that class doesn't participate, that class will do everything they can to throw you off, all this stuff. And this new teacher coming in, is like, well, I use, I've taught for 40 years. I'm not putting up with that. So I go to second period. I go to third period. And now it's science class, fourth period. We get in there, getting all settled. I don't know any of the history, but this teacher comes in and he's mad. <laughs> he's he's going to set the record straight. And he goes, okay, here's how we're doing this year. There will be no goofing off. If I hear giggling, you're out. If you ask a question without raising your hand, you're out. All of this stuff. Anything will get you sent to the principal's office. He's just laying down the law. There's not any tomfoolery. I'm not going to accept anything that's going to set us off course. Here are the rules. We're going to follow them. And I'm sitting here like, did we do something wrong? I don't know what happened. But he approached them very aggressively. And some students took that as a personal challenge. I may have participated. And so here's what happened. The students heard all of the rules and decided they could agree to those terms. And so what happened is it's September and everyone has colds in September. This was back when you could have flu-like symptoms and still go to school. And so the way the school was set up is the teacher had his desk, the students had their desk, then there's all the lab equipment in their desks, and in the very back is where the tissue boxes were kept. So he starts teaching 
student raises his hand, because that's the rule. And he goes, yes. And he goes, I have to go blow my nose. Okay, go blow your nose. The kid goes up. He goes back to teaching. Kid walks all the way back there. It's a long trek. Then you hear the <laughs> then the throw away, then the walk back. Then another 30 seconds go by. Someone else has to. And then that kid has to again. And then another kid has to. And then everyone's doing it. And now all of a sudden, there's just this kind of thing happening where the teacher can't say anything without <laughs> in the background. And someone raising their hand and having to ask them what they need. So after about three days, we burned through probably five tissue boxes, and this teacher was done. So what he did is he went to Costco, and he got a Costco bag of toilet paper rolls, and he set them on the back, and he said, okay, new game. Here's what we're doing. If you have a runny nose, if you're sick, you're going to decide that right now. You'll go in the back before class starts and take a roll of toilet paper, and it will stay at your desk. When you have to blow your nose, you'll do so as quietly as possible. And at the end of class, you will throw away all of your toilet paper. And so a few students went, they grabbed the rolls of toilet paper, they sat down, and class starts like normal. And then one student had this idea. He took the roll of toilet paper, and he's looking at it, and he starts to wrap it around the base of his desk. He makes eye contact with another student and rolls it across the floor. That student grabs it, wraps it around the base of his desk, and then everybody starts doing it. And now there's toilet paper going everywhere. And the teacher's just doing this thing. And the class has never been this quiet. Like, everyone's just silent. He's writing. This goes on for 40 minutes. We're out of toilet paper. No one's learned anything. And he's writing, he's writing, he's writing. And he stops. And he turns, he looks at the ground, and he goes, you guys, I'm just so impressed with you. I can't believe how well you've done today. I really feel like we're turning a corner. Uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for making today so easy and paying attention. What is that? And you just see kind of like a tidal wave, how the coast goes away. You just see his hope drift back, and then disappointment just crash on him. And that's how we started the school year. But what you believe about someone is going to directly influence your relationship with that person. And sometimes you can even instigate it if you're like, no, this is how they are. And then sometimes you get, fine, that's how we'll be. Sometimes you get that if you believe that about people. And I think that we can do that with God, where we have this idea of who God is and how God works that may not even be in line with his character. Like, I know that a ton of people have this idea that when you think God of the Old Testament, just like that phrase, sometimes you'll think wrath, and you'll think judgment, and you'll think bad things. There's like bad connotation with that. And then you say, but then Jesus. So it kind of, you know, there's God of the Old Testament, but Jesus. So it evens out at not realizing, is that really the God of the Old Testament? Is the God of the Old Testament, the God that we're looking at right now, a wrathful God? As Richard Dawkins put it, he's called the high priest of atheism. He's a, a very intellectual man, writes a bunch of books. He calls God the most heinous, malicious character ever written about, because that's his perception of him. And tonight, we're going to look at a super interesting part of Scripture. The chapters before, the chapters behind, where we're at is super interesting, not only about how God reveals himself, but also what God says about himself. And I think the way that you and I view God, what we believe about God, it's gonna, it, it changes everything. It changes the way you parent. It changes the way you talk to your spouse. It changes the way that you pray. Like when you pray, do you think it does anything? Because there's a group of Christians that 
when they pray, you know, it's more meditative than anything, but God's got his will and God's going to do what God wants to do. And I just want to be in line with his will. So I pray for that. That while there's other Christians who believe, you know, if, if I pray, a mountain can be uprooted and tossed into the sea. And so how, what does God say we should do? So what you believe about God really matters. And I'm really excited tonight to look into Exodus chapter 34 and see not only what the Bible says about God, but what God himself says about himself. So verse one. Yahweh said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I love those three words, which you broke. If you remember um, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 16, a few weeks ago, it, the Bible says the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So God makes these tablets on it has got all the rules that the Israelites have to follow to be God's people. An incident happens. God's frustrated. Moses calms it down. He goes down to the base of the mountain, throws them on the ground and breaks them. And God doesn't let it go. He's like, you broke them. Now you're going to cut them out. Now you're going to deal with it. Maybe now if you spend the time working on it, you'll care about it. I just think it's funny. I think sometimes we have this tone that we read into God when we read the Bible that isn't really there. Like even if you read the woman at the well and you see that Jesus sitting down with this woman and there's really two ways you can read it. Jesus sitting with this woman and he goes, hey, go get your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. You could have, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the person you're with right now is not your husband. Or you could read it, hey, go get your husband. No, I don't have a husband. <laughs> yeah, okay, you're right. You don't have a husband. And the person that you're with right now is not your husband. Like two completely different tones. One of them is, condem is condemnation. And the other one is a little bit more, I think, how it went down. Having a real conversation with the person who's trying to be kind of like the students in my class. Following the rules, I'm not going to lie to you, but I'm also going to try to get out of it. I think tone is super important. This, this section makes me laugh, where God looks at Moses and says, which you broke. I'm not going to let you forget that. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Super interesting. Right here you have God comes down and stands with them. It's not a conception. It's not a, a, a feeling. It's a real, tangible person, being, comes and stands with Moses on top of the mountain. Verse 6, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So right here, we're in the center of what I think is, for me, the most interesting part of Exodus. Because you've had two events transpiring right before this, where you have God calls Moses up on the mountain. I'm going to tell you, hey, these are the things that you're going to do with your people to be my people. We're going to be a set-apart nation. 
when that happens, the Israelites do the worst thing they could do. They turn to other gods and they create for themselves a golden calf. And here's what God says about that. It's verse, chapter 32, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. We read that a few weeks ago, remember? So God says to Moses, leave me be. I'm going to wreck these people and I'm going to start over with you. God's declared it. This is going to happen. But verse 11, but Moses implored. You have one guy who's also a sinner. He's got a track record that's not great, who stands before God about a nation of sinners who are all doing the very thing they know they're not supposed to do, and God relents. You have everybody doing the wrong thing, but one person prays for all the people doing the wrong thing, and God changes his mind. And then you have it again in chapter 33, verse 3, right? Yes, go up to land with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stick-necked people. So God goes, okay, there's the land. You guys go, but I'm not going with you because you guys don't listen to me because you guys are headstrong. You guys are just going to do whatever you want. And then in verse 12, you have Moses's intercession, which you looked at last week, where you again have one guy who stands before God in front of the entire nation, who's going to do the wrong thing, who's going to mess up, and God relents. Isn't that crazy? Here's what's super encouraging for me. God really values your prayer. And you see it here, even in the Old Testament. Jesus talks about it all the time, but in the Old Testament, you have one person talking to God on behalf of all of these sinful, broken people, and God goes, yeah, okay. There's this imagery that I love where there's only one person in the world who would dare wake up a king in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water. And that's a child. Only one person would dare wake up a king and say, hey, can you get up, go down to the kitchen, get me something to drink? And the king would be like, yeah, okay, no problem. And that's yours and my position to God. We can't forget that, that when we pray, God listens to us. Like I listen to my daughter when we're on the drive home. She goes, can we get ice cream? No, we're not going to get ice cream. Oh, please, daddy. Can we get ice cream? I, I listened so well at church. Here's the story that we heard. Okay, I guess we're getting ice cream. You know, God listens. It's so important that we be people who pray, even praying for people that are totally living their lives crazy, totally doing the wrong thing, even if they're actively involved in idol worship. We pray for those people because it matters. God listens. God hears our prayers. And here's something that I love, which I know it's not my chapter. It's the previous chapter, but I just want to say it one more time. Verse 11 of 33, Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Christianity uniquely has a God that we approach as our friend. And you and I know that Jesus, the Bible tells us, is a friend who's closer than a brother. You can come to him with anything. You could talk to him about anything, and you'll receive no judgment. You'll receive no condemnation. You could talk to God freely. It's amazing. Christianity uniquely has that position with God. Verse, wait, I'm not done because there's more here. So this is what God says about himself. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is that what you think about when you think God of the Old Testament? Because sometimes I think the people with the signs who say repent, you know what I mean, when I think God of the Old Testament. But here's what the Old Testament people believed about God. One of my favorite illustrations of it is in Jonah. Here's how Jonah, the book of Jonah opens. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Adamai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Doesn't that kind of sound like God of the Old Testament? I see their evil, go to them. Now, if your belief about God is that he's this malicious God, well, then what you perceive is God is going to send Jonah there, and then hellfire is going to come down. It's going to be Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. But here's what Jonah does. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. So here's the Ninevites. The Ninevites were a really malevolent group of people. What they did is they were constantly at war with the people around them and the Israelites. They were one of the first groups of people that began experimenting with torture and, and skinning people while they were still alive. And one of the things they would do when they would win a battle is they'd put hooks in the prisoners of war and drag them home behind their camels. Super brutal people. The, those who survived became slaves and those who were too weak or they died, they, they executed. Absolutely heinous group of people. Jonah does not run because he thinks he's going to be in danger. Here's why Jonah ran. Tells us in chapter four. Here's what happens. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh after kicking and screaming and doing everything he can to get away. Some of you know the story. When he's finally in Nineveh, he tells him, hey, God's coming and he's going to burn this place down. And all the people repent. All the people turn away from their wickedness. All the people come to God and say, man, we, we want to do something different. We want to change, all that sort of stuff. And here's his response. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, this is what he knows about God, that you are a gracious God, merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What he knew about God is what he told him right here in Exodus 34. I know who you are. I know you're a God that if you have sinners in front of you, you'll do whatever you can to save them. And I know these people and I don't want them saved. And so he ran away from him. And here's the thing that we know that Jonah didn't know. Jonah's looking at this group of people that have hurt his family, that have hurt his friends, that have hurt his nation for generations in terrible ways. What you and I know that Jonah didn't know is we have a God who's not only is so excited to forgive the sinner and so excited to bring broken people into his fold, but also a God who's really serious about justice and is really serious about sin. God's not letting them off the hook scot-free. God is going to pay for their sin, isn't he? God is going to take every person's sin. God is so serious about justice and, and judgment being passed out that he will take it upon himself, even at the cost of himself. So you have these people that Jonah says they deserve to die, and God says, there will be death to pay for it. I will handle it. He has no idea how that's going to play out, but you and I do. You and I get to read the Bible through a whole different lens. So here's the God of the Old Testament that all the prophets knew how they understood him. He's a God who's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And when he sees a sinner, so excited to bring him into his fold. 
Verse 7, here's where some people get off track. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We like this part so far. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What do you do with that? You, you have in the verse before that God is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But here you have, he will visit the iniquity. What do you do with that? I think there's this tension in God's character. We have a God who, if, if you come to him, will give, offer you forgiveness, will offer you grace, will offer you mercy. But he's also a God that doesn't take sin lightly. He's a God that can't tolerate someone choosing to continue to do things in a way that's going to not only hurt them, but hurt their, hurt their spouse and their community and their children. And I don't think it's God saying, hey, yeah, I'm going to punish your kids. What I think it is, is it's the things that you're doing, your kids are going to punish themselves. The way that you're choosing to live your life, they're going to become damaged and they're going to become bad photocopies of bad photocopies. And the way that they saw their mom get treated, they're going to treat their spouse that way. And the way that they were treated as a kid, that's how they're going to treat their kids. But here is the great hope that's in this. Here's the great thing. When translating from Hebrew to English, sometimes words get added so that you and I as Americans can understand what it's trying to say. Verse seven ends with to the third and fourth generation in your English Bible. It's not how the Hebrew says it. It says, to the third and fourth. And it just ends there, because they would understand what that meant. And so I think we miss out, especially in the ESV, some translations have it right, at the beginning of chapter 7, where it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Because it makes it sound like thousands of individuals. But it's not. It's the same idea. It's God has steadfast love for thousands of generations. There's iniquity and there's sin that's going to hurt kids for generations, three, maybe even four. But God's love, God's ability to forgive is so exponentially beyond that. People can get hurt and get into bad cycles that's going to really crush them. Sin grows at compound interest, doesn't it? It just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. But God's ability to forgive, God's ability to take people out of those cycles, God's ability to heal is exponentially greater. Not three or four times, but a thousand times greater. Super exciting, good verse. There's a lot of people who are, have a bad perception of God, and they think, God, how could you let this happen? But a lot of the times, it's the circumstances that we've been put in that, or that our parents have got us in. And what we need to do is exactly like the song said today, we fix our eyes upon Jesus. We look to a God who's so serious about taking care of sin and relieving the burden that we have been placed on us by our parents or by our communities, and we trust that his burden is light and his yoke is easy, and he's someone we can come to and trust in and relieve us. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worship, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us as your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people 
I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. So God's saying, I'm making this covenant with you again. You're going to go into this land. There are people there who are scary, and I'm going to drive them out from before you. I will make a way for you. You don't have to worry about that. And on your way, you're going to break down every altar, tear down every idol worship paraphernalia and get rid of it because I'm not going to have that become a snare for you. You're not going to intermarry. You're going to do things as my people in my way. And then it throws out this interesting proper noun, this name, Asherim, at the end of verse 13. If you're interested at all in the Canaanite pantheon, this is the fertility, fertility goddess. They had these places where people would go to worship to this goddess Asherim, and they would pray to her to take their prayers to Baal, where their prayers would hopefully get answered. They would hopefully get kids or a fertile crop or, or whatever it was. It, you can kind of picture her as Baal's receptionist. That's the part that she would play. And here's what I think is so interesting. The Canaanites knew that if their God really was holy, if their God really was God, they would have to have someone to be an intermediary person for them, a mediator. And you and I know that to be true too, but we don't have a mediator that we hope gets it right and that we hope will bring our prayers to God. We have a mediator whose name is Jesus. And that when we pray, it doesn't go to God as this jumbled mess that sometimes our prayers can be. You ever feel like, I don't know the words to pray. I don't know what I'm trying to say. The Bible tells us that when we pray, Jesus takes our prayers goes to God with our prayers and says, hey, this is what Marilyn is asking for. Hey, this is what Nick is trying to say. Hey, here's what's going on. Can we do something about it? Let's do something. When we pray, it matters so much. God personally takes those prayers to God as our mediator between us and God. Isn't that amazing? The position that we have, that the creator of the universe, we can literally go to at any time and talk to him. It's amazing. Verse 14, for you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What does that mean that God is saying his name is Jealous? What it means is he is the creator God. He is the God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy for generations. No other God is that way. I'm not going to let any other God take credit for who I am. I'm not going to let any other God take place in your life where only I should be. That's what it means when he's saying, I'm a jealous God. I'm going to be your God and yours alone. Don't think anything else provides for you. Don't think anything else is there for you. I alone am God, your God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice their gods, and you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. This is probably one of my favorite verses. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. This is kind of recapping things in earlier chapters, even as far as Exodus chapter 22, and now there's a new rule. Like, 
God didn't think that you'd have to have this rule before. Now I guess we're having a rule. You know, when you have kids, all of a sudden there's rules that you never had before. Like, you can't pee there. You know, like, I never thought I'd have to say that, but now there are rules that apparently we have to have. This is one of those rules where God goes, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I don't even know if Moses made eye contact with God at that point. It's like, yes, okay, write that one down. New rule. Verse 18, you shall keep the feasts of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year shall all your male appear before Yahweh God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before Yahweh your God three times in a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is recapping what we talked about a few weeks ago, almost verbatim, Exodus chapters 23 and 24, saying, okay, we're going to start over now. Here are the rules. Isn't that great that you can start over with God? Isn't that awesome that there's nothing that you've ever done that's too far gone? There's nothing that you've ever done that could ever exclude you from his love, that whenever you choose to turn to Jesus, you can start over. Clean slate. Here we go. We're moving forward. That's what God offers them. And here's what happens when Moses comes down. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him, but Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Super crazy. Moses goes in to speak with God, comes out, and his face is glowing, like in a supernatural way, a bright face. And it freaks some of the Israelites out. It's this totally unique, crazy encounter. And Paul will later reflect on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what's so awesome about Paul. I, he's hysterical if you read his letters. What, what had happened in 
Corinth is a group of people came in and saw the church right after Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians and saw what the church was doing. And they go, what are you doing? Oh, this guy named Paul came and told us about Jesus. And these false teachers said, well, you know, I don't know about his education. I don't know about where he's been. I think he needs to bring us a letter of recommendation. You know, So the church of Corinth says, Paul, hey, we need a letter of rec from you. And Paul's response in this chapter of 2 Corinthians is, dude, you're my letter of rec. Like the church that's established, that's my letter of recommendation. It's kind of like if someone came into Edgewater and we were going to have like a high school graduation and, and Matt goes, yeah, I'll, I'll share there. And someone says to Matt, man, I really think we might need your letter of recommendation to speak. Don't know how well of a speaker you are. Kind of silly, right? Matt might go, this is my letter of recommendation. <laughs> Hello? That's kind of what Paul is doing here. Here's what Paul says about the same event where Moses, he comes down off the mountain, his face is glowing. He has just met with God, like a glorious thing, right? Totally supernatural, totally unique. But he comes down off the mountain with these tablets. And these tablets, what they do is they illustrate for you and me, they illustrate for all believers, our desperate need for a savior. If God lays out all the rules, all the things that are expected of us, we will never be able to follow all of them. For Paul, it was covetousness. He could never break covetousness. How easy is it to covet what your neighbor has? Every time you walk home and you see that they got a brand new car or somehow they're able to keep their lawn green, which I can't do to save my life. My wife lets me know. But like, how do you do that? I don't know. But covetousness was Paul's thing. I can't ever keep that. The law shows us our desperate need for a savior. You'll never be able to keep it. You'll never be able to do all that you need to do to be righteous. So here's what Paul says. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, the tablets. He's looking back at the covenant saying that's the ministry of death because it just shows you I can't do all the things that God needs me to do to be righteous before him. Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Here's what Paul is saying when he looks at this story. You have Moses coming down. His face is shining because he literally met with God, but the Israelites are kind of freaked out by it. So he, he puts a veil over his face. He covers it so they won't be freaked out. Paul looks back on that talk in the context of there's people saying, hey, I need a letter of recommendation from you. He's saying, if you really believe all that Jesus has done for you, all that God has done for you, why are you putting a veil over your face? If you really believe that Jesus did what he did for you, that you are God's child accepted, not because of any work of your own, but because of everything that Jesus did, don't wear a veil. Go out into your community and let them see what God has done for you today. That's how we're supposed to be. If you believe that this is God, that God is a God who's 
gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who's slow to anger. If you believe that Jesus is God, that should coat how we do everything. That coats not only how we pray to God and we approach God, but also how we approach our spouse and pray for our spouse, how we approach and pray for our kids, how we talk about and pray for our government leadership at any capacity, at any level, how we pray for our community. It should coat everything. We shouldn't be people who put a veil over what we believe, but instead we'd be those who go, I know I have a God who's in control. I know I have a God who's desperate for the sinner. I'm not going to cover my Christianity. I'm going to move forward hoping that people would see the goodness of God in the land of the living, in the land of the living. Amen. Hey, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are God. Thank you that from beginning to end, you are the same today, yesterday, and forever. That you are a God who's desperate to reconcile with people. And that there's nothing we could ever do that would make us too sinful or too wrong or place us out of your sight. But that you're a God who sees us, who hears our prayers, who remembers us. I pray that we'd be people who know our shepherd's voice and that when you call us to act, you call us to speak to people, that we would do so courageously, knowing that, God, you brought them into our lives to show them your goodness. Help us to not put a veil over our face or over our Christianity or over our relationship with you, but that it would just be known to all people in our community, oh yeah, that person's a Jesus follower. Every time I talk to them, they have to bring up Jesus. Every time they talk about their kids, they're talking about Jesus. Help that just be who we are this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.